And uh, welcome back, and welcome for those of you who weren't able to make it last night. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Lord, we pause this morning and are grateful to you for uh, this opportunity to gather again together to uh, think about you, about your word, and the implications it has for our lives and so uh, this morning, as we consider further the Trinity, um, Lord, bless us with clarity of thought and focus and diligence in our own uh, attempts to understand and to grow. Um, and may your spirit do a work in us and change us uh, in this process of discipleship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to be talking about the ontological and economic trinity today with you. Um, <clears throat> I want to begin just by saying at the outset, I, I'm really going to focus more of my time on the ontological trinity than the economic trinity, so it's going to be quite imbalanced, and I apologize for that. It's just that, um, you know, you always have to decide what it is you're going to say, what you're not going to say, and I've just decided to spend more time in one area than the other this morning, um, not because one is more important than the other. Uh, it's just that there are some things I, I think are important to develop with the ontological trinity um, that's just going to take some time. So if it feels like, well, uh, Roy really didn't say much at the end there about the economic trinity um, in comparison, well, that's that's just why. I, I made a choice to do that. Um, at the beginning of your outline, uh, there is a quote here from Augustine. I think as we uh, consider the trinity, it's Always nice to reflect on what others have said about it, or even the study of the Trinity. And here's what Augustine says in his work on the Trinity. He says, Let me ask of my reader, wherever alike with myself he is certain, there to go on with me. Wherever alike with myself he hesitates, there to join me in inquiring. Wherever he recognizes himself to be in error, there to return to me. Wherever he recognizes me to be so, that is, in error, there to call me back. And I would make this pious and safe agreement in the presence of our Lord God with all who read my writings, as well as in all other cases as, above all, in the case of those which inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. So, yes, that would have been in the uh, 4th century A.D. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so there you go. There's Augustine's take on the significance of the study of the Trinity and the dangers that lie in, in discussing it and attempting to understand it. Um, and, and there's a certain seriousness uh, and sober, a sobering quality to opening up the subject. Pastor Booth mentioned that uh, in his talk last night as well. And so um, we approach the subject with reverence, with humility, uh, but also with a position and posture of wanting to, to learn. And I think, <clears throat> you know, this is a discipleship uh, series, and Christian maturity necessarily involves uh, doctrinal maturity. So there's no way we can grow and say we're growing as Christians, unless that includes at some level doctrinal maturity. 
uh, we should be maturing in our doctrinal clarity and understanding as individuals. And this is part of what we're doing here. This is not something that is sort of an appendage. Um, this is part and parcel with our growth as Christians. And so uh, what a great privilege it is. We have um, the resources of time to, to do this and to spend talking about this. I'm going to follow the outline pretty pretty closely. There's a few sections that may not fit well. So as I'm speaking, I'm going to reference the outline for some information or some, for some helpful organization there. All right. Well, uh, I want to begin with the basics, and that is uh, that God is a trinity. Uh, the distinctive Christian understanding of God is that he exists as a trinity. That's no surprise to you. A singular being or essence, yet tripersonal. <clears throat> the term trinity emerged in early Christian history as the designation for the uniquely Christian monotheistic understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as a triunity. In fact, there wasn't even a word for this. It was coined. A new word had to be made to talk about this. <clears throat> the church has to learn how to affirm both the unity and plurality of God. That's our task. We have to learn how to do that together. Unity is implied in the very idea of God, <clears throat> properly conceived, for there cannot be more than one necessary being. Christian teaching affirms this unity so that it does not say that there are three persons in the same sense as they are one God, which might cause us to say foolishly something like, he are three, or they is three. Even if this is acceptable grammar in East Texas, it still doesn't make any sense, literally. God is one. Father, Son, and Spirit are three. God's unity is not a unity of separable parts, but of distinguishable persons. Let me say that again. God's unity is not a unity of separable parts, but of distinguishable persons. The church father, uh, Gregory Nanzianzus, said, When I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The term Trinity may be traced back to Tertullian. Maybe you're familiar with that name. Uh, he's famous for the, the quip, uh, what, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The famous question he raised about uh, Greek philosophy and, and Christian teaching. Uh, that same Tertullian, a third century Latin father, he coined the worm, uh, the worm, he coined the word Trinitas, Trinitas, to express this unique intra-divine relationship that uh, was in the Christian God's nature. Um, so while the term Trinity itself is not a biblical word, the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly founded upon both Old and New Testament revelation, and Pastor Booth went over some of that last night. Um, the Old Testament, just briefly, frequently uses such terms as the Spirit of God, um, the Angel of the Lord, things like that, which suggests some kind of plurality in the nature of God. And further, the frequent use of the divine name in the plural form and the intimations of divine personhood in references to the Word of God, like in Psalm, in the Psalms, um, and in the wisdom of God, like in Proverbs 8, for example, all, all imply Old Testament roots for a doctrine of the Trinity, yet it was still inchoate. It wasn't fleshed out, obviously. And while there is no explicit doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament either, one can more easily trace its Trinitarian reflection there 
the divinity of Jesus is clearly set forth. I mean, Matthew 16 is pretty clear, John 20. Um, and the divine nature of the Spirit or Comforter is equally well attested, especially in John. Uh, John's references to the Spirit um, are, are, are many. And most compelling are the Trinit- what we call the Trinitarian formulas found throughout New Testament literature. So, for example, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the benediction there that Paul gives, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, that probably represents one of the earliest known Trinitarian formulas we have in Scripture, which Paul uses to bless the community of faith. And the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly articulated also in the baptismal formula in Matthew. When Jesus is baptized, we have uh, the Spirit descending like a dove. We have God the Father speaking to the Son. We have the Son being baptized. Uh, so all three persons of the Trinity are brought together at the baptism of Jesus. And this is significant theologically on many levels. I don't, I'm not going to you know, preach a sermon on that right now. But um, the salvation of the believer is intimately associated with the Trinity, with Father, uh, Spirit, and Jesus. Our baptism unites us in Christ's baptism, which is Trinitarian. Uh, in 1 Peter 1-2, this comes together. So there's all these Trinitarian formulas that we encounter when we start reading the New Testament and wrestling with, uh, you know, really the question has always been, what do you do with Jesus? <laughs> uh, Jesus made us really carefully think the revelation of Christ really made the early Christians and even us today Think carefully about the nature of God. So Trinitarian doctrine is intimately integrated into the central doctrines of the Christian faith in its earliest confessional literature. In fact, we must have a theory of Trinity to explain the numerous passages like the ones I mentioned. Otherwise, they would simply make no sense. So the Trinity, a theory of the Trinity, underlies the reading and interpretation of what Scripture gives us. So in the earliest centuries of the Christian era, the doctrine of the Trinity was developed in the context of pre- and post-Nicene Christological debates. And that's just debates about uh, who is Jesus, essentially. Um, Is he divine? And if so, how does he relate to uh, God the Father, etc.? So, uh, and the Nicene um, reference there is to the, the, the Council of Nicaea in 325, which had a significant effect on... Uh, the orthodox position of the Christian church on the matter. So if you think about this historically, in these early centuries, particularly under the leadership of what, uh, what is called the Cappadocian Fathers, who were some Greek-speaking Christian thinkers, they had a, a huge influence in this debate. Attention was focused upon what came to be called the oikonomia, uh, or the economic trinity. So their focus, because of their interest in Christology, they started talking about the economy of the Trinity. What did the persons of the Trinity do in relationship to the world? Now, in the Middle Ages, there was a shift in focus where um, the Middle Age, in the Middle Ages and the theological work being done there started to shift its focus away from the economic Trinity to what they called uh, theologia, uh, theologia in se was the Latin phrase, and basically that is how, who God is in himself. What is the essence or the nature of, the, of God as a being? Not how does the three persons function in relationship to the world, but rather how do they function intra-Trinitarianly is another way to put that. So historically you had a shift, but the ironic thing about this is 
that the interest in Christology and the economic trinity that the early church fathers had actually led them to formulate the doctrine of an ontological trinity. So it's not as if these two are unrelated in that way. Um, you know, Nicene uh, Trinitarian theology came out of an interest in the economic trinity, but led to a formulation of the ontological trinity, which is kind of interesting. Yes, it, yes, sir. I was about to do that. You anticipated me. That's all right. Yeah, there. So, in fact, uh, you can turn right there to. Uh, actually, it's on page one. Those two are defined in section three. Two ways of speaking about the Trinity. I just introduced that historically. There were two ways and two focuses during these two different periods of time. But if we want to get uh, precise about what we mean by these two, and really the term ontological, it's, it comes from the study of uh, philosophy. There's a an area or field of philosophy called um, metaphysics, and within metaphysics you have this study of ontology, which is really the philosophical study of being. It asks questions like, what does it mean to exist? What is existence? And what implications does it have for how we think about the world and such? So when we talk about the ontological trinity, we're really talking about the existence of God as it is in himself. Okay, So it's, it's somewhat abstract, intentionally so. Um, the nature of the question is. Now when we talk about economy, it's like we talk about the economy of the family, the, role, the different roles the different members of the family play and how they relate to one another in real life, uh, the responsibilities, the subordination, the, that sort of thing. We get into the economy, how, how things work out or play out in that realm. Um, that's kind of what we're referring to with the Trinity as well. How does, how does the triune God relate to his creation? What, what roles do the persons play with respect to one another and to uh, human beings and the whole created order? That's essentially the, the difference. Is that helpful? Uh, if there's questions about that, we can continue to talk about it. I'm happy to do that. I also, there's two just, these. I took two definitions right out of a theological dictionary. Um, I think it's the, is it, yeah, pocket dictionary of theological terms, which is really handy. Um, you can, you know, I'm not going to read those to you, but another way of understanding the difference between the two ways of speaking about the Trinity. We don't want to say there are two trinities, that's not what we mean here. There aren't two trinities. This, these are two ways of, of thinking or speaking about the trinity. One in, in essence and one in relationship to the world. Um, so the ontological trinity, sometimes it's called the uh, imminent tr- trinity, is the trinity as it exists necessarily and eternally, apart from creation, in and of itself. That's why the Latin fathers called it in se, in himself. God as he is in himself. It's what God necessarily is in being or essence. The economic trinity, like we said, is the trinity in its relationship to creation, including the specific roles played by the Trinitarian persons throughout the history of creation, providence, redemption. These are the roles that the persons of the trinity have freely entered into. These weren't necessary to his being. These were roles that the Trinity has freely entered into in a relationship to its, to its creation. So they are not necessary to his being. Um, now, we have some early heresies. Uh, Pastor Booth gave you a list of those yesterday. Uh, one of those, Sabellianism, or called modalism, it has like four names. Um, Sabellianism, modalism, denies that the Trinity is ontological. Okay? 
So it would say, for the modalist, Father, Son, and Spirit are not the nature of God, but only roles or modes that God assumes in history. Now, Arianism, on the other hand, uh, actually not on the other hand, it's kind of similarly Arianism teaches that three persons are not necessary to the being of God. That's not essential to God. For the Son and the Spirit are creations of the one true God. That's the heresy of Arianism. Um, so, the Son, for the Son and the Spirit are creations of the one true God, the Father, who is monopersonal, not tripersonal. Okay, that's the heresy of Arianism. But the biblical position is um, that God is a trinity, both ontologically and economically. Okay? So we can talk about it as the trinity as ontological, the trinity as economic. Now, many recent theologians, actually, within both Catholic and Protestant traditions, argue that this distinction between how God has disclosed himself in history and how he is in himself is an artificial distinction. They don't buy it. Uh, the two Karls, Karl Barth and Karl Rahner, one Protestant, the other Catholic, have both argued that the distinction is faulty, creating too large a separation between God's nature and his revelation of himself in history. And if you think about it, I can appreciate that. Um, because when they offer this critique, they're trying to protect three things. They're trying to protect three principles that they feel uh, is, uh, is in danger, are in danger by this distinction. So first, they're trying to protect the fact that God reveals himself as he really and truly is in the world. And they feel like making a distinction between these two things is somehow uh, messing that up. The second thing they're wanting to protect is that the incarnate life of Jesus is itself an aspect of the eternal Son of God. The actions and experiences of Jesus in time are actions and experiences of God. And they feel like making this distinction separates that and doesn't allow us to think in those terms. And finally, they try uh, to protect this notion that... um, the economic roles played by the three persons of the Trinity must be appropriate to their natures. That is, the Son rather than the Father or the Spirit became incarnate. Uh, this was a decision made freely by the persons of the Trinity, but not an arbitrary one, which they suggest it seems like that's what it, that's what we say sometimes when we make these distinctions. Now, I greatly, greatly appreciate what they're trying to protect here, and I think those all need to be protected, but I think they take their critique of this distinction too far. And this is my view. I'm not saying this is something you have to believe. Um, I think all these three principles are true, but I don't think this distinction, uh, as we are going to talk about it, is in any way undermining these three things. Um, There still remains, in my view, a real difference between what God is necessarily and what he freely chooses to do in his plan of creation. The distinction does not imply discontinuity between who God is, essentially, and how he interacts and reveals himself in creation. We don't have to go that far with the distinction. I don't think that's uh, the problem. So, there you go. It's just kind of an interesting debate that still continues. People are still arguing about the Trinity, and it won't ever stop. Um, and, And because it's such an important and fundamental thing. Now, let's look at the ontological Trinity for a moment, a few moments here. Um, I have the Westminster Confessions uh, article on the Trinity, and this is the only place in the Confession where the Trinity is talked about. 
It's done so very briefly. It's in the con- it's in the context of the article, uh, the section on on God, um, naturally. And so, uh, section two, article three, in the unity of the Godhead, this is what the Westminster says. In the unity of the Godhead, there there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. That's what they say. And really all they're doing here is affirming Nicene Orthodoxy. That's, they're just saying what Nicene says. Uh, they don't go on to extrapolate the implications of this or anything like that. This is just the confession of God as Trinity. So it's a nice, clean summary of what Nicene says. Um, but there's difficulty of expression here. And this is where terminology really comes into play and why studying the Trinity has a bad reputation. It's because you have to think really hard and it, because you have to get into terminology and the way language works and concepts and, you know, it gets confusing pretty quickly. But I'm going to try my best to summarize the historical, theological development of the ontological trinity, the statement of who God is as a trinity. Um, and, I'm not, and what I'm not going to do is try to uh, open up the mystery of what the trinity is, but rather how can we affirm both the unity and plurality of God and be consistent with Scripture and makes, at the same time make sense. Yes, sir? I think one of the challenges in our modern society, both inside the church and out today, about the Trinity, is that I think our society has embraced the mindset that if I can't understand it completely or explain it thoroughly, then it must not be true. And that makes sometimes Christians uncomfortable about the Trinity because one of the doctrine, if I'm right, one of the doctrinal positions about the Trinity is it is more profound than we can truly understand. Yet we can get to a degree close to it. But because we're also products of our culture, that sometimes makes it Absolutely, yeah. Because of the infinite nature of God, we can be, we're still safe in that. Yes. We can go ahead and trust it, even if we don't completely. That's right, and you're exactly right, absolutely. And we, uh, we don't like that uh, in the area of theology or you know religion and politics maybe or maybe just religion and morality but we don't think that same way in other areas of life it's like the whole thing of uh you know we we want we want uh honesty we want absolute truth from our doctors and our spouses and all that when it comes to those things but when we come to religion and morality we don't want absolute truth there because then that makes me responsible for something you know we, we have that sentiment um you're exactly right. Well, everything that we're developing here is really about confession. What does the church say about God in this matter? We have to say something about it, right? And we have to make sense of this at some level without trying to explore the, in all the mystery, uh, work out all the mysteries of the Trinity. Uh, what do we say about it, right? What do we mean when we say God is one and three and three and one? That's kind of where this goes. We have to be able to say something about that, and I think we can. Um, but it's not, it's not easy. It's difficult. So the doctrine of the Trinity, as we know it today, was formulated by the ecumenical councils of the early first uh, four centuries of the church. And really, it's a systematic reflection upon the data of Scripture and an attempt 
to formulate the data of Scripture into a coherent doctrine of God. That's really what it is. Okay? So the difficulty that the church faced was how do you say precisely and without confusion that there is only one God and yet there are three persons, each of whom is God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? How can you avoid saying, on the one hand, that there are three gods, which you don't want to say, that would deny monotheism, or, on the other hand, that there is only one God and that these three persons are just different facets of the same person, which would not be correct either. How do you affirm both the deity of each of the persons and their distinctness at the same time? So we're going to take a look at that. The roots of this formulation really come out, uh, and at Nicaea, this was kind of codified, first by the, this first ecumenical council but before that there was there was some uh, waves of uh, thinking on these issues that came way before Nicaea and we kind of have to delve into those just quickly one of those is called logos christology and this came out of the early greek apologists and uh and i'll explain what that is and so who were these men these second century christian thinkers they lived in the century immediately following the earthly ministry of Christ. So they weren't far removed historically uh, from the apostles and the teaching of the apostles. Uh, so we're talking about around 100 AD and, and, and later. They included people like Justin Martyr, Tatian, Theophilus, Athenagoras, etc. These were early Christian thinkers who wrote in defense of the Christian faith within a context of an overwhelmingly pagan Roman culture. They had their work cut out for them. These men helped lay the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity that was eventually promulgated at the Council of Nicaea in 325, though they didn't have it all worked out. They didn't have it all figured out, but they were working on it. Their position is called Logos Christology because it takes its inspiration from two sources. Uh, on the one hand, from the prologue to the Gospel of John. Okay, Now you'll remember, John says, in the beginning was the word, and, and the Greek word behind that, that's translated as word, is Logos. Uh, y'all probably heard that term before. That is to say, in the beginning was the Logos. Logos is the Greek word for word or reason. So in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, is what John tells us. And then John describes how he became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. So on the one hand, there was this doctrine of Christ as the Logos of God coming out of the prologue of the Gospel of John. That's what they were working from. Next... And significantly, this is also connected with the work of a Jewish philosopher named Philo, Philo of Alexandria. And if you ever doubt the influence of philosophy on the formulation of classic Christian doctrines, then this is a case in point. Philo lived about from 25 B.C. to A.D. 40. He was a Jewish philosopher who was an advocate of what they called Middle Platonism at the time. It was Platonic philosophy that had developed into the first century. And he was an advocate of this, this particular brand of Platonism. Um, in Middle Platonism, and in particularly the writings of Philo, what we see is this notion of logos comes to light. And we see, when John uses the word, what he's actually playing with in terms of how it was used in his day. So it gives us a real window into what John's doing here theologically with this concept of the logos. The logos was a, a unifying principle behind the universe. So these ancient Greek thinkers looked out at the world naturally because of common grace. They saw, you know what, there's all this diversity around here. There's all this complexity, but there's some unifying principle behind it all. There's something that holds it all together. What is it? Well, it's the Logos. 
It's reason. It's mind. It's, it's something. Okay? Some force. Um, and that's about as abstract as it would, or that's about as concrete as it would get. They had this logos notion that held everything together. Kind of like the, uh, the first century version of intelligent designs. Well, kind of, yes. They didn't, although, although they didn't spell it out like that, but that's essentially kind of a unifying principle behind everything. And all that can explain and all the diversity and everything like that. Um, well, when, when John uses the term, what John's doing is saying, yeah, there is this unifying principle behind the world. And I'll tell you who he is. It's Jesus incarnate. Right? So, so John does something scandalous to the Greek mind with, with this. But nonetheless, this was the, this was the prevailing uh, influence of philosophy on Greek thinking at the time. And certainly John was aware of that and even used it to his advantage to make, uh, to make his claim about Christ. So you had this sort of rational blueprint for the world, and they understood this to be, um, Philo talks about this as the cosmos noetos, the mind of the cosmos, or some kind of rational principle that exists in the mind of the divine and kind of serves as a pattern for the world. Okay, That's his notion of what that is. So what they did was... Um, these Greek apologists, schooled as they were in Greek philosophy, connected Philo's doctrine of the Logos with the doctrine of the Logos found in the Gospel of John. And they held that prior to the creation of the world, um, that this Logos existed imminently in the mind of God. That it was like in, like that was in, uh, this Logos principle was basically the mind of God, essentially. And they had this notion of it proceeding out of the mind of God, and creating the world. So they saw Jesus as the mind of God that proceeds from his mind and creates the world, becomes incarnate, etc. So for these early Greek apologists, they talked about Christ in this Logos Christology way. Now, that's not what Nicaea affirmed, right? That wasn't even, that wasn't what came to be orthodox because we don't talk about Jesus as the mind of God proceeding from his mind. We do talk about him proceeding, but we talk about in terms of begetting, eternally begetting but nonetheless that's the background to this all this language we hear about the proceeding uh, forth of the son from the father okay so um moving on now we we can talk about modalism because that's really the next thing that happened in the development of this doctrine okay Mm-hmm. From the Father and the Son. Yes. But they would have used the Logos Christology folks, the, the early the early Greek apologists, would have used language of proceeding, not begotten. And that's one of the things Nicaea corrects in their thinking. Well, they would use it. I think their word proceeding there, we sh- I don't think we should understand that proceeding from the same proceeding we use to refer to the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. I think what the, all they meant was the mind of God goes forth. I don't think that, there wasn't really a lot of nuance to that verb for them. It's just notion that the mind of God becomes operative and, and Jesus, and they, and they identified Jesus with that with the mind of God coming forth and creating the world. And the incarnate Jesus was the incarnate mind of God. 
That's kind of how they would explain it. Now, we would say that's not exactly right. They were, they were, tr- they were trying to figure all this out. That's, that's true. I mean, we've, we have confessions, and we say this is what the church believes about the Trinity. Yes. Yeah. Um, so modalism followed this Logos Christology in the second of the second century, and so this is really a third century development. So third century comes along, we have modalism starting to creep up, creep up, and it was heresy that was propagated by certain theologians, Noetus, Sibelius, Praxius, and others. And sometimes modalism is called monarchianism because it holds that there's one God who is like the monarch over the other persons, who we would call persons, they wouldn't call them that. Or sometimes Sabellianism, because Sibelius was a teacher of this particular view. And it was opposed by the church fathers, uh, especially Tertullian, uh, Oregon, Novation. Uh, they, they got in some pretty serious discussion with, with these modalists. Um, so those were some of the principal protagonists of this debate. So what is modalism? Well, simply, it's a Unitarian view of God, like we said before. It's a view that there's only one person who is God. The Father is the one who became... Uh, is the one who became incarnate. There is no distinct person from the Father. There's just one Father. And so it was really the Father who became incarnate in Jesus Christ. It's the Father who uh, is in the mode of the Spirit. That's right. I mean, we, yeah. uh, sometimes modalism holds that the persons that we speak of as Father, Son, and Spirit are just different roles played by that. For, you know, for example, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. But... That's not really, Pastor Bruce is going to talk about analogy. Maybe he's going to correct me on this. But that analogy doesn't hold uh, because I'm just one person. God is three persons. Uh, those are just three different relationships that I stand in. Or I might play di- three different roles. I might be a teacher, a craftsman, and a musician. But those are different roles that I could play as one person. But there aren't three persons in me. So similarly, modalism claims that there's just one person who is God who functions in these three different ways. So you can see modalism, uh, on modalism, the deity of Christ is actually affirmed, though. The idea that Christ's deity is in any way denied on modalism is quite false. Modalism had a very high view of Christ, interestingly enough. But it just didn't distinguish the persons of the Trinity. It didn't deny the deity of the Son and the Spirit, but it just denied that they they were distinct persons. So Tertullian, in his essay uh, entitled Against Praxius, you can imagine what that's about, um, which is an excellent early writing. If you want to read some of these guys, this is a great place to start. Read Tertullian on Against Praxius, uh, a great essay. He says that the error of the modalists in their thinking uh, is their thinking that one cannot believe in only the, uh, in only one God in any other way than by saying that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the very self-same person. That was his Uh, that was his summary of what they believed. He says, while they are all of one by unity, that is, of substance, he says, the mystery of the economy distributes the unity into a trinity, placing it in their order of three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet of one substance and of one condition and of one power inasmuch as he is God. So there he's affirming Nicene orthodoxy before Nicaea. So Tertullian here gives us the vocabulary of the trinity. Right here. He gives us the, the terms we're using and, and which are going to be used to describe the Trinity. He says, the economy of God distributes the unity of God into these three persons. And that's what you have distinct in God. 
So if it will often be said by contemporary theologians that when Tertullian affirmed that God is three persons, he's really not meaning the, the person in the modern psychological sense. In fact, there's a quote on your outline from R.C. Sproul that says this too. This, when we talk we're talking about persons, we have to be careful because that's ambiguous. And we tend to have a notion of person in our modern situation. It's a psychological uh, understanding of that. And people like R.C. Sproul said we've got to be careful not to understand that. However, I do think there's something, uh, if you read Tertullian, for example, it really seems like Tertullian is thinking of the persons of the Trinity as, as self-conscious persons. Like, there is a psychological component to it. It seems to me, when I read Tertullian, that's what it seems like he's saying. He even goes into the reason why he makes distinction in persons is because there's this I-thou relationship between them. And so he seems to indicate there are some, there's these three centers of consciousness within one being. You and I are one being. We only have one center of consciousness. seems like to me Tertullian understood God to be one being with three centers of consciousness, namely Father, Son, and Spirit. There's quibble over this. What's the real, what's the right view? I don't know. I lean toward more of a center of consciousness approach myself, but again, I'm happy to uh, be corrected on that. That's not essential to the debate, but it is an interesting aspect of it. And then finally, we get to Arianism. And Arianism uh, is a, this is where the, the, the plot thickens a little in this story of the development of this doctrinal confession. Um, this heresy arose in the fourth century. Arius was a presbyter of the church in Alexandria in Egypt, and he was opposed by Athanasius, one of the greatest of the church fathers in Alexandria who became a champion of Orthodox Trinitarian theology. In fact, the Athanasian Creed that Pastor Booth quoted from yesterday was, uh, you know, has his name on it. So in the year 319, Arius began to propagate this doctrine that the Son is not the same substance as the Father. He went beyond modalism. The Son is not the same substance as the Father. Rather, he was created by the Father before the beginning of the world. So before God created the world, he created the Son, and so therefore the Son had a beginning. He was different. He was a created thing. And this really, this really ruffled the feathers of guys like Athanasius. They saw dangers in this. And remember, this is, this is pre-Nicaea. None of this had been codified or ratified by the churches across Rome. Um, so the reason most theologians like Athanasius found this to be abhorrent was not, as Arius himself fancied, because he affirmed the Son had a beginning. That's actually not what they had a problem with, necessarily. If you remember, the early Greek apologists had a similar idea in their Logos Christology. So it wasn't something new to them. That they were that wasn't their main concern. Uh, that was not what they were worried about. Okay. So even within Orthodox circles up to this point in history... There was the idea that the Son might not be eternal as a distinct person, but was, they started using the term, begotten at a certain point in time. So Arius thought, well, I'm not saying anything different than these early guys did in saying there was a time when the Son did not exist. I'm, I'm not breaking any rules here. Well, he missed the point. And as Athanasius said, what was really objectionable about Arius's doctrine was not that the Son had a beginning, although they would object to that too, whereas God is without a beginning. Rather, it was that Arius denied that the Logos existed even imminently in the mind of God prior to creation, so that the Logos was, in fact, a work of God 
not an aspect of God. Okay? So he was a creature that God had made. He wasn't begotten from the Father in any sense of the term. He wasn't of the substance of the Father. He was a work and therefore a creature. He was part of creation. So that was what was objectionable about Arius' doctrine to these men, especially to Athanasius. So Athanasius wrote that on Arius' view, the Son is, quote, a creature and a work not proper to the Father's essence. And that's where they had uh, serious issues. So one of the key terms in this early debate was this Greek term, homoousius. Homoousius, and that's on your outline. I've got all these Greek terms there. Which really expressed the sameness of substance of the Son with the Father. So homo, as you know, means the same. Homogenized milk, the same. The cream is not separated. Okay? Then we have the term ousius. Ousius comes from the Greek word ousia, which means substance. So to say that the Son son and the Father are homoousius is to say that they are the same substance. That is to say they are the same nature, the same essence, the same thing, the same being. This is how the Greek uh, theologians were speaking about the Trinity in these terms. They were using language to try to communicate this. So the doctrine of Arius, by contrast, was heterousius. Hetero means different, of course. Like heterosexual, different sexes. So to say that the son and the father were heterousius meant that they had different a different substance. They were not the same substance or essence. So the son, in fact, um, the son was, in fact, a creation or a work that the father had made and was therefore distinct from his nature was heterousius. Okay, two natures. So there were those who tried to take a, a middle road here, and so they came up with another word to help resolve this, and this word is homoousius, and all you do is add an I between the two, the prefix and the suffix. And now you have the middle way of similar substance. Okay, God's not of the same substance, but he's also not two different substance. God the Father and the Son are actually of similar substance, is what these men would say. Okay? So, um, literally, the debate about the nature and the relationship between the Father and the Son came down to an iota. It was all about an iota. And there was fierce debate over this. Is it homo, hetero, or homoi? And, and really between uh, homo and homoi was where the debate um, was happening quite a bit. So, when we say things like, I don't give a single iota about that, that comes out of this Trinitarian controversy. Because at one point it did matter, like big time. So these are some of the key terms that were used in this debate. That These men were trying to use language to express the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, yet not deny the unity and the essence of all of them. So in 325, famously, Emperor Constantine, He was the first Christian emperor who proclaimed an edict of toleration for Christianity throughout Roman Empire. Before that, Christians had gone through cycles of uh, persecution under different emperors across Rome. Um, He convened an ecumenical council. Lots of debate about why he did that, but that's not our concern today. He did, and there was a council of Nicaea in modern-day Turkey, Constantinople. This was the first such council where representatives from the universal church all around Rome, think about this, uh, bishops from all over Rome came to Nicaea to meet and talk about this thing right here, uh, among other things. 
This was one of the main controversies because it was about to split. It was about to destroy the church in Rome. There was all kinds of debate going on all across the Roman Empire in all these Christian circles, and they needed to sort this out. And, and under providence, God, uh, you know, under Constantine's leadership and divine providence, he brought them together and they talked about this. So at the Council of Nicaea, there were basically four parties. You can imagine not everybody agreed. There were four different parties that were represented there. So on the one hand, there were the Athanasians, who had the strong view that God the Father and Christ were the same substance. And on the other hand, there were about six bishops who were Arians, six of them who sided with uh, the teaching of Arius. There were probably around 70 to 90 bishops, we think, who were semi-Arians, and they held the homoousius view. And then there were the... (laughs) The, the largest group of this uh, gathering was about 200 bishops who were basically just completely confused and had no idea what to think about it. <laughs> they were just coming to listen to what people wanted, had to say. So in the debates at the council, uh, the Athanasians prevailed, and the Council of Nicaea promulgated the Nicene Creed, uh, which when we cite the Nicene Creed, we're actually citing a later development of that creed, uh, the Council of Constantinople further clarified other Arianisms that cropped up in the meantime between Nicaea, and they actually added clarity to the statement. So what we say is actually called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, we mostly just call it the Nicene Creed because it, it was built on what was already there. But it, was, it does represent later developments because further heresy continued after Nicaea. And the councils met again and convened and said, no, this is where we stand on this. So in the original Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed uh, at the very, la- the very last line just says, we believe, you know, all these things about Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, done. It said nothing about the Holy Spirit in reference to anything. It just said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, in the creed that we confess, uh, typically in our liturgy, we, we have the statement where it talks about, it clarifies some things about the Holy Spirit, which is just evidence that these creeds were you know, in a process of further trying to clarify and say, here's the line. Here's the line. Here, you know, here's where orthodoxy is. So it's interesting that these confessions were not initially created for litur- as liturgical documents. They weren't intended to be, they weren't designed to be used in liturgy. Certainly we can use them and we should, but that's not their, init- that's not their purpose. Their function was doctrinal clarity. Um, and we just need to keep that in mind. Oh yeah, I think modern forms of Arianism are are present with us in those cults. Um, and I think just, I had a seminary professor years ago uh, when I first started trying to do some seminary work at, at Baylor. He told me, he said, uh, he told the class, uh, gentlemen, some of you are going to be going into pastoral ministry into local communities wh- wherever God takes you. And he says, what you're going to, your job is going to be is to take those churches from practicing a folk religion to practicing Orthodox Christian uh, living. And his understanding was much of American Christianity, especially in the South, basically had degenerated into a folk religion and that they really weren't practicing orthodox belief 
in what Christianity really teaches. And I thought, um, that has stuck with me. And I've seen that actually play out. I think that's true to some degree. I think in issues like practically how we think about, how we uh, embody our belief, right? What we do embodies what, what, we, what we say or believe. Something, that's not matching up in some ways. And I think, you know, thinking about Jesus and what he's done for me and what salvation is, what is the gospel? I mean, all those fundamental questions that are Trinitarian at their very root, I think we're still pretty confused, and myself included. I'm still trying to learn. We're doing this for that very reason. But, yeah, I think Arianism for sure, or forms of Arianism certainly are present there. You know, on the street, the regular old guy who's a you know, nominal Christian who doesn't think, doesn't go to church, doesn't read the Bible, doesn't care about how Christianity matters, he just wants to consider himself a Christian for whatever reason. I don't think there's any heresy going on other than just, I don't care. It's apathy, you know. But, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question to think about and consider how these ancient heresies actually are still, even in the church, to some degree, practically, you know. Um, Yeah, I think so. I think, right, and those are vague. I mean, it's vague, right? And not in every way. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like pure folk religion in, in, in that, you know, in the purest sense of that, but there are elements that certainly we're, we're practicing tradition, not cri- biblical teaching, or we're believing tradition and not biblical, in a, in a, as opposed to biblical teaching. And we're, we're couching it in biblical phrases and terms and language, but the substance of it isn't biblical. Yes. I guess it may be um, anachronistic to say, but you wouldn't have Christianity. I mean, Jesus was not divine on Arius' view. And if you strip Jesus of his divinity, what, I mean, where do you go from there? That's, that's detrimental. Yeah. Okay, okay, Rush Dooney's, what is it called? Okay, sounds like a good one. Needs to go in my stack. Y'all have a stack of books you wish you had time to read? <laughs> Stacks, maybe? Yeah, so in terms of just it's a Unitarian perspective, yes, Islam would be in the same camp. It's a Unitarian view of God. You can't, there's no multi-personal, no multi, multi-personality in the one nature of God. He's one person and one being. 
So, yeah. One of the reasons that many Muslims consider Christians to be infidel or heretical is because they are often taught, because of the concept of the Trinity, that Christians believe there are three gods. Yes. Right. And that's what that's the burden we have is, I mean, it's hard enough getting Christians to think carefully about the Trinity. Uh, skeptics don't certainly they want to they see the Trinity and like, man, this is fre- this is good stuff. I can do a lot with this. How ridiculous this is. You know, um, it is. I mean, discussions about the Trinity because they get so technical in order to really lay it out. You've got to get into some of this stuff. Um, and a lot of people don't care, frankly. Also, one of the things that creates both Christianity and America is that people don't like the shame or uncomfortable with the shame of being told that they're wrong. Yes. So rather than accept God as He is, they create oh, yeah. God in their own mind who approves of them generally. Yes. And then they happen to give that false God the name Jesus. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you're getting at something, I mean, the this notion of psychological bias. I mean, we operate off of psychological bias much more than we do off of any kind of, uh, you know, reasonable uh, uh, truth. Just that's part of just being human as well, and that's that's why sanctification, this process of maturity in the faith, entails doctrinal maturity, and it keeps us it keeps us balanced. We are a holistic. We're built of emotions and psych- a psyche and all these things, a body. Uh, and we don't want to separate those out or say the mind is, you know, the mind does this and the body does that. I'm not a strict dualist in that way. But, yeah, these psychological components of this are very powerful. I think the counseling of the folk religion, the folk religion practically was Trinitarian. Practically. They prayed to the Father, through the Son's name, by the Holy Spirit. But I think theologically, almost every denomination, every country that's embraced Christianity has struggled to stay theologically Trinitarian. And the reason is, is because apart from the creeds and understanding historic Christianity, just going to the Bible and trying to read it, you always believe something. Yes, and it's powerful to think like, everything we're saying here is affirmed well up until about uh, 1000 AD when the East and West Church split. I mean, this is ecumenical orthodoxy. You read the Nicene Creed, even the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, Catholics, Protestants are going to affirm that version of the Trinity. Now, we do get in the Filioque controversy, which we're not going to get into, but does the Spirit proceed only from the Father, or does he proceed from both the Father and the Son, like we say, which was a later addition to the Creed? And that became a huge controversy. And that's part of what split the East from the West. The Eastern Orthodox Church split, uh, and one of the primary reasons was because of that controversy right there. Whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father and the Son. And the Son is that phrase, filioque. Um, an interesting discussion. Now, Calvin, Luther, all, most of the Reformers 
uh, argue against the Eastern view of that. Uh, they argue that double procession is the biblical view. Um, so the Reformed tradition, and obviously it's expressed in our version of the creed, but the Eastern Church, when they say the Nicene Creed, they don't say, and proceeds from the Father and the Son. They just says, and proceeds from the Father. Interesting, isn't it? So it's tedious. I'm running out of time. I'm probably out of time, but I need to. I do need to make a mention of. See, I needed two lectures, Pastor Booth, but don't have it. Um, I. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I do want to. I do want to mention. Okay, so. Just to kind of cap that up, I didn't get to finish everything I wanted to say on that, but um, I want to I want to just summarize it and say, you know, these early early formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity says something about the uh, the ontology of the Trinity and the economy of the Trinity. That's we can see both of those in the creed, but I, but it was because of Christology, because these men were trying to figure out how best to understand the person work of Christ as God that led them to, to formulating the, on, the ontological perspective of the Trinity and the, the economic Trinity as well. And so um, uh, just keep that in mind. I want to read just real quickly a couple paragraphs here from Thomas Oden's uh, classic Christianity, a uh, really neat work. He attempts to do a systematic theology based on ec- ecumenical theology, uh, not trying to make everybody happy, but what is the common core of doctrine that we share with Christians uh, across the world and across history. He has this to say about um, the economic trinity, and he claims that baptism is the key to understanding the economic trinity. Baptism is the key to understanding the economic trinity. In fact, um, let me find it in my notes here. So he says, in when we encounter the trinity, it's that God the Father makes himself known in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of God who is present throughout the historical process of creation, fall, redemption, working to transform it according to God's purposes. That's his summary of the economic trinity. And then he goes on to say that in every Orthodox Christian tradition, I'm going to finish with this um, if you're getting antsy, uh, in every Orthodox Christian tradition, baptism occurs in the name, not the names as Pastor Booth pointed out yesterday, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christian teaching is best thought of as a commentary on baptism. It is a happy task of trying to explain what baptism in the triune name means. Our baptism unites us to Christ in his baptism. If you recall, it's at Jesus' baptism that one of the most powerful Trinitarian formulas in the New Testament is found. And then he goes on to say this. He says, the triune understanding of God... um, I'm on the right spot. Yes. The triune understanding of God gives way to uh, of looking at the meaning of God's coming in the whole of history and into human hearts, the arena of God's revelation, the subject of theology. The simple act of baptism teaches, rehearses, and embraces the entire story of salvation. It attests to the church's attempt to view historic uh, history synoptically, that is, with one view to grasp a unified picture of God in acts of creation, redemption, and consummation. Classical Christianity views the history of salvation as an inclusive threefold movement from beginning to end. Um, and, and so there's so much more to say about the economic trinity uh, as well. And I told you I was going to be very thin on that at the end here. But nonetheless, we can see that 
I really think that notion of baptism being the key to to accessing uh, an understanding of how God relates to creation is through this sacrament of baptism. I think that's a theologically rich way to think about it, and I really appreciate that about Dr. Odin. Um, it really helped me in studying this. I had not thought about that at all before, and that's changed the way I think about it. I think it's deepened my appreciation for the economic trinity and my understanding of that. I didn't even get to talk about some of the ways the trinity is exhibited in creation. Um, so like the trinity in logic, the trinity in perception, the trinity in some of those things. Maybe, Pastor Booth, you're going to get into some of that in your analogies. I don't know. Perhaps. All right. Well, I have a prayer to the Trinity uh, there on your outline, which is what we're going to close with. So I'll be reading it in first person, and so you can be praying this yourself with me as as I as I pray it. This is uh, from uh, the Book of Puritan Prayers. Some of you might have it actually. The Valley of Vision is one of my favorite devotional material, uh, and this is a prayer to the Trinity. This is a a lesson in how to pray to the Trinity. <clears throat> so would you pray with me? Three in one, one in three, God of my salvation. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore Thee as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons, for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and to Thy kingdom. O Father, Thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O, o Jesus, Thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed Thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, Thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise Thee, for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O Father, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast given me to Jesus to be His sheep, jewel, portion. O Jesus, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation, implanted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with Him forever. O Father, Thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, Thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, Thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need to supply words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. O triune God who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name. Amen.